19 through 26, 27 through 30. If the Lord gives us the next week, I'm going to look at um, the doctrine of good works. <clears throat> so that'll be next week, Lord willing. And then the title of this ser- sermon is more thematically, we're, we're looking at the, the institution of the church in Antioch, but the theme is the circumstances and servants for gospel growth. Um, <clears throat> that's the new title. If you're on the church email, I, I send out my notes if you want the notes to line your birdcage. Um, Acts chapter, what did I say? Uh, um, 11. Hear the holy word of our holy God. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews alone. There were some of the men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. News about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with a resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. He left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up, began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the reign of Claudius, and in the portion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, this is your, your word. You were the one Holy Spirit that governed the inspired prophets and apostles. And Lord God, I am uninspired, but I'm your servant. And I pray thou, my great Jehovah, that you would govern the thoughts of my mind, the words of my lips, And even my tone, Lord, it would be acceptable and pleasing to you according to your word that all of us would have the requisite faith to receive the truth of Christ and to rest upon you, Jesus, to love you and labor to serve you increasingly as we find you offered to us in the Bible. Um, And if there are any that have come into this place, Lord, and they are not converted to you, Jesus Christ, may you do for them and to them what we find in this passage that today would be the day of their salvation. We would rejoice exceedingly, along with Barnabas. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> We're looking at the advance of the gospel or the gospel kingdom. There are people busily moving from the state of unbelief to belief. We we'll see a number of times in the passages, um, many came to believe in the Lord and great numbers came to believe in the Lord. And how that occurs is through the ministry of the Word of God in general, and specifically the Word of the Gospel. Of course, I'm not excluding the Word of the, the, um, the Law. But, but you remember, the Lord Jesus Christ has told his men in the, the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20, that they're to, they're to go out to the whole world, and they're to preach and to teach everything that ta- Christ taught them, and to make disciples and baptizing them, and, and so on. And Jesus has specifically told his men to go and preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul calls it the message of the cross. And it's a figurative way to encompass everything that's under that heading of substitutionary atonement 
Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the cross. The Apostle Paul says that Jesus didn't send him to baptize. He sent him to preach the gospel, the message of the cross. Galatians chapter 5 or 6, I think perhaps 6, he says, I glory in nothing except the cross, the atoning, saving, reconciling, cleansing work of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Christ has given this command to his gospel preachers, in particular apostles, obviously, specifically. But Jesus Christ has said this, not only just in the Great Commission, think of in Acts chapter 1, he says, go from Judea to Samaria, the middler position between Jews and Gentiles. They're kind of a hodgepodge of Jew and Gentile from the Assyrian captivity. And then go out to the four corners of the earth. Judea, Samaria, four corners of the earth. We're going to be looking at um, the faithfulness of Christ's preachers who have gone out to the four corners of the earth. But they're doing so under the command of Jesus Christ. There are some that, even professing Christians, they object to the evangelical nature of Christianity. Why don't you all just have your private religion and just be quiet at home? Because we can't. Because Jesus Christ has commanded, specifically ministers, but he has commanded. And even if the, if the minister was mute, the rocks would cry out the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 24, the gospel of the kingdom shall, 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 must be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So what we're looking at is the the obedience to the command of Jesus. And I just want to spend a little bit of time on the notion of command. Command carries with it, obviously, the notion of authority. There is a superior and there is a subordinate. We hate the idea of superior subordinate. We hate the idea of authority, unless, of course, we're the superior. Of course, we're always the superior in our own minds. Jesus is the superior. He gives a command to his subordinates. I don't I hate to use the word inferior, but the inferior, we're the inferior. And he says, I command you for the apostles, the extraordinary preachers, and then for ordinary preachers, I command you. Preach the gospel of the cross, that there is salvation, forgiveness, love, reconciliation in the blood. And who should I preach it to? I command you to preach it to everyone. Black, white, red, yellow, rich, poor, free, slave, everyone. It's a command. And so when the minister is being faithful and even against the wishes of the world, even against the wishes of the church, I guarantee you that there are men, if they begin to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ in the proclamation of carrying out that command, they they would be finding another job pretty quick in their churches. I guarantee you. I guarantee you. So do we fear, does the man fear men more than he fears God? Christ says, I command you. And then I want to apply that even to the gospel itself. The gospel, not always, but sometimes in the Greek is put in the command form. And so sometimes evangelism or gospel witnessing goes on like this. If you would like to, I don't know, if you would like to, maybe you could make Jesus' whole day He's in heaven saying, just make my whole day and believe in me. And you know, no, I'm not going to do it. not going to do it. I've got other stuff to do. And we make it this kind of mamby-pamby. If you would like, if there's nothing better to do, you could believe in Jesus. Beloved, that's not the Bible. Oftentimes, the, not only the, the, 
to preach is put in the command form, but to believe the gospel is put in the command form. We don't like to think of it like that. So the minister is under obligation. I must do it. No matter if I feel sick or not, I must. When the gospel goes out, the command is repent. Not only would the minister find himself another job if he started fearing God more than man, he might find himself another job if he starts to preach like that. You must repent. What happens if I don't feel like repenting of my sins? You will die in your sins. It's not an option. Repentance is not an option. Acts chapter 17, it got Paul in a jam to Athenian philosophers. You must repent. It's in a command form. And then even, even the idea, the call to believe in Jesus. This is like, well, Jesus is such a gentleman. He just kind of sits around. He's the God of heaven and earth. The gospel is repent of your sins. You must believe. You must believe. It's a requirement. So I hope everybody in this room is a believer. I really do. If you are not a believer in Jesus, you've not trusted him as your only life, hope for life and death, you must believe. Today is the day. You must believe. Christ says it. So to obey is, is obeying God, is to please God. And to reject the gospel is not just a personal choice, is a sin. It is a sin. So I don't want to get hung up on the command business, but we're looking at, in the book of Acts, obedience to the command to spread the gospel everywhere. And it will get us in a jam with the world, and it will get us in a jam with most of the church, which are like, essentially, the world. And, and what we have is the carrying out of that command and implicit in the command, when Jesus says, go preach, which is what Peter and now Paul and Barnabas are, are, are doing, is God is promising implicitly in the command that the word itself will carry with it its own effectual success. In other words, that when he says, go preach and make disciples of all the nations, including people in Antioch, Syria, he's implying that the word is going to be successful. Now, people are dead in their sins and trespasses. That's what the Bible says, and experience proves it. But what he's saying is, my gospel has effectual power. Christ died for the elect, and he'll bring in every one of his elect, and the Holy Spirit will effectually apply that to the elect people of God. And we don't know who they are, only he does. And God brings them through the ministry of the word. So when you think, well, if you're sending them out, out into the, the world, and the world is what the Bible says the world is, as, as George Whitfield said, Unregenerate man is half a beast and half a devil. Beloved, you don't need to be more than five years old till you figure that out. One of our sisters read from Romans chapter 3. Natural people are Romans 3, 8 through 19. They're scallywags. They hate God, they hate Christ, they hate holiness, and they hate Christians. Now go tell them about Jesus. You'll be thinking, like, is this going to work? Oh, yeah, it's going to work. Why? Christ implicitly says, I'm going to send you out and I will make the word effectual. This is God's business. In a number of times, certainly in verse 20, and many came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and considerable numbers were converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Was it through the, the right use of tricky means? No, verse 20 says they preached what? Jesus. They preached Christ. They preached the cross. Well, didn't they do anything tricky like trampolines and coffee shops and kung fu classes? They didn't do any of that. They preached Christ and people repented of their sins and they turned to Jesus and, and they were saved. Does that mean everyone did? Here are considerable numbers. There was 
there's kind of a, a, a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Not everyone will believe. When God says go and preach and make disciples, implicitly there will be disciples to make. It doesn't mean everyone. I'm still reformed, I promise. I still have my Calvin card somewhere. I, I promise. Who will believe? Read Acts 13, verse 48. Everyone appointed to eternal life believed. Read Romans 9. All of the elect remnant of God will believe. John 1, 10 through 13. How are we born again? By the flesh? By the will of God. Everyone who believes, everyone who receives, by God's doing. But Jesus, in this whole business, is essentially promising success in it. Remember, my dad told me when my, I told my dad that my wife was pregnant with my first son. And he came from a different era and a different background. And I remember what he said to me. It, just, it, never, it never left my mind. And he was going up to bed. I came home all happy, you know, she's pregnant, blah, 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 blah. And he said, well, you've done it now. Uh, you're a mule, and you're going to be pulling that plow to the day you die. And I thought, man, what a bummer. So basically, I got a wife that I got to drag around like a mule pulling a cart. I got this kid I'm going to drag around like a mule pulling a cart. What a bummer. It's like you're telling someone off the front end, it's not going to work. Jesus does the exact opposite. My word will be effectual. And we need to believe that. The preachers need to believe it. We need to believe that the word of the God, the word of the gospel, will effectually bring people out of their sins into Jesus Christ. We need to believe it. And the Bible says that God's word will not go from his mouth and come back to him what? Empty or void? Do you believe that? The reason people do the kung fu classes and the coffee shops and the stretching and the Christian yoga, which is Christian Hinduism, the, the reason they do that is because they don't believe this. They do not believe that the word has effectual power by effectual Christ. So we have the command, but then we have the implicit promise that his word will bear fruit. One of my favorite passages, it's on resurrection, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The very last word, the very last sentence in chapter 15, he says something like this, don't worry, none of your labors for Christ are in vain. Beloved, sometimes in our serving Jesus Christ, both qualitatively in ourselves and other people, and then quantitatively, number of Christians, we don't see like this. I just read a book by Ian Murray on revival and revivalism. You read, you read. I just quoted George Whitfield. These guys, like 20,000 people. I've never seen that. But the numbers don't belong to us. The numbers belong to God. We leave the numbers to him. But we can be certain that the word of the Lord Jesus Christ will, 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 will be effectual for the advance of his gospel kingdom in our lives and in the lives of other people. And sometimes you say, well, I've been pouring the gospel seed into my sons and, I, and my daughters. I don't see any fruit. Be like J.C. Ryle. I think most of J.C. Ryle's kids weren't converted. He said, maybe God will convert them after I die. Maybe I won't see the gospel fruit after I die. We need to live in the confidence of God's word. So we have the command, the implicit success. As I've been stating all along, Acts chapter, well, the, the entire book of Acts, but certainly our passage is essentially the record of the, the faithfulness, the obedient faithfulness of gospel preachers to the command by the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Let me ask you a question. Does man save himself? Is it auto-salvation? Can we save ourselves? No. Can, does, does one human being, do we have the ability to save another human being? No. Every mother, every mother, if we could, would do what? The first thing the mother would do is save all her children. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. If we could, we would. But we can't. Man does not save. God saves. But ordinarily, how does God bring people out of their sins and bring them to the Savior, thus we would be reconciled? Ordinarily, how does he do it? He takes a minister. He takes a preacher. He takes a mama. He takes a grandmother. And they give away the gospel of Jesus. They tell people about Jesus Christ, the Savior of sinners. That's how he does it. That's this. That's this. We think this is so simple. This is so, this is so sublime. It's so heavenly. It's so above the ways of man. We wouldn't do it this way. We wouldn't do it this way. How did young Timothy come to know Jesus Christ savingly? It was a mother and a grandmother that ta- taught little Timothy Jesus from the Bible. So we're looking at the obedience and so you think, well, we're Calvinists. Does this mean you just sit and, and everything's in neutral and God moves us around like... I've got Calvin's Institutes. I've read them a few times. I'm a Calvinist. I, I read these things. I don't find any of that. Does God supernaturally, effectively ordain all things? But he uses means. He uses means, even our own secondary standard. Chapter 3, chapter 5. He's the primary cause, but he uses real secondary causes. How will they hear about Jesus unless what? A preacher goes. How does that all work? I don't have a clue. I know that he does it. He does it. And so these people, these Antiochian Syrian Christians, are around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ because a bunch of other Christians came around and said, your pagan gods are no gods. Come to know the true God, to the true Savior. And they did. Beloved, is a glorious thing to be born in a Christian home. I mean a real Christian home, not just you stub your toe and you say the name Jesus as a curse word or you have a Bible on your coffee table. I mean a real Christian home, a real mother that loves Christ, a real father that loves Christ, and they teach you the holy religion. They pray Christ over you. What a blessing. What a blessing to learn Christ even from... And, 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 And so Timothy was... Now, in this instance, obviously, my title was going to be the church in Antioch. Antioch is in Syria. Um, we'll, well, I'll talk about the geography in just a bit. So we have individual Christians in the Syrian capital. They've, they've come out of paganism. And I'm using that technically. It's not a pejorative. I know I'm not supposed to say that today. But they're pagans. They're heathens. They don't worship the true God. And they come to know the true God through the true Savior, Jesus Christ. And so individually, they're saved. And then corporately, there's a church that's being formed there. And my wife and I at family worship, we were talking about this, and she said, how sad. I said, what do you mean, how sad? And what she meant is, how sad. I was talking about uh, Turkey. Paul is from Tarsus in Turkey, which is 120 miles away from Antioch in Syria. She said, how sad. We have these awesome Christian beacons, and now for the most part, what's there? Someone said a mosque. Look at the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. For the most part, what's there? A mosque. 
But God here has established a church for a time. And so we're, we're, we're looking at that instance. Now look at verse 19. Verse 19 is the impetus or the catalyst for the growth of this particular church, for these people to come to hear that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. This is the catalyst, the thing that motivates gospel-ers, preachers, to go. And I will point out, this is not in my sermon notes, but th- these are not the apostles gone out. I don't like the idea of cl- clergy laity. Um, I, I just don't like it. I'm, I'm conscientiously kind of a low churchman uh, myself, just philosophically and, and, and constitutionally and biblically. So I don't like the distinction. But we don't have an apostle. This isn't an apostle. This is just regular old Christians, if you want to, like regular old Christians. And then we got Barnabas. And they're out there. And what are they doing? They're telling folks about Christ. And um, <clears throat> what's the thing that God, the Holy Spirit, uses as the great motivating catalyst to take believing Jewish folks in Judea and Jerusalem and bring them to these Phoenician places and Syrian places. What's the catalyst? Look at verse 19. Is persecution. Is persecution. And what he's referencing back is to the time of Stephen. What is Stephen, what? Acts 6. And then after Stephen with the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 8, certainly... What happens? Here in Judea and Jerusalem, Jewish folks come to believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And then the unbelieving Jews say to the believing Jews, what? We're going to kill you. We are going to kill you. That's how much. So people think, well, if you're unconverted, you, you know, you're just really neutral. There's no neutrality. You're either for Christ or against him. You're either scattering against Christ or you're gathering with him. There is no neutrality. If you think you are straddling the fence, you're against Jesus. If you want to be lukewarm, he's going to spit you out of your mouth, his mouth. We are for Christ or we're against him. And so persecution comes and persecution is God's divine catalyst to spread people who know the gospel to people that don't know the gospel. And a couple of things are implicit in that. We're doing a membership class in most everybody in the room comes from some form of Christian church. Um, most of us don't come from Reformed churches. Most of us, I come from the Roman Catholic Church. My wife was a Hindu, and then we were converted. And so not, 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 not Reformed and not Christian. Most of us come from Arminian-type churches. And so when we hear sovereignty of God, well, you Presbyterians believe in the sovereignty of God. We, 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 we do. Guilty as charged. And what we're looking at here is the sovereignty of God. And what does that mean? Sometimes Presbyterians like to use that when we're beating up on our, uh, our Arminian friends and to show us how smart we are. and We know something that they don't know, which is kind of shows that we don't know what we think we know, but that's another sermon. The sovereignty of God is God's lordship, his government over all his creatures and all their actions. It's a mind blower. So when we think it's like, aha, I know what you don't know, you, you, you silly Arminian Methodist. Really? How about your wife's sickness? How about your kid's sickness? How about your poverty? How about this? How about that? You see what I mean? Sovereign, sovereign. Government, government. Even the sparrow that falls to the ground, God is intimately governing that. Even the... the, Read the, the last couple of chapters in the book of Job. God feeds even the critters. He does it. When God sends out persecution, because he says he sends it, when he sends persecution, he is governing every. We don't understand. If you tell me 
Well, how does this work? Again, I don't know. But God knows. God is intimately involved in all of his creation, and Christ especially is intimately involved in the affairs of his church. I mentioned the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is essentially Jesus saying to his church, I'm going to put down all of my and your enemies. All of the enemies of the church will be put down. I will strengthen, I will grow, and I will glorify my church. I will. Promise. That's what we're looking at. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is God come in the flesh, is going to take persecution. And that which the devil meant for evil, he's going to do what? He's going to work it for good. He's going to work it for good. And how it worked for these particular Jewish Christians, Jewish believers in Jesus, is, is something like this. If you believe in Jesus, we're going to put you out of the, the, the synagogue. And if you persist in believing in Jesus, we're going to put you out of your uh, the planet. We're going to kill you. Now, most of y'all know this. I used to be a pacifist. I'm not a pacifist anymore. I believe that you, we, we have right to self-defense. Only the state wields, wields the sword. So don't come to me and say, we're going to start a militia at this church. You're going to start a militia, but not at the church. And I'll visit you in jail. So we'll talk about that later. So I don't believe in hurting people unless you're a cop or you're in the military and only properly so. But when we, we come to this business of sending persecutors, we, we don't think like this at all. We think this is not the way to grow the church. The way that people come to know Jesus, this is what our flesh thinks, even as real Christians. We think like, how are you going to get people to come to Jesus? How do you do it? First, you can't preach the law. No, because it's too scary. It's bad news. You can't tell people that. You can't. You get to get rid of the sin word. You get, can't do that. Can't do any blood. Nothing like that. You call God he, she, whatever. You got to. You got to make it so. And then you have to have, like I don't know, uh, horseshoes and something. You've got to do some tricks to get folks in. Am I? Am I? Am I wrong? Am I wrong? You know I'm not wrong. You, you know how I could fill this church right now? I could have a blow-up kingdom. I'm not picking on this. I passed a church that you needed a shoehorn. They had blow-up kingdoms, free ice, cool, uh, ice cream, and, and a pony padding, petting zoo. I am not lying. <laughs> What's God's plan? I'm going to send persecution. You see, we want easy, flesh-appealing man-pleasing, fun ways to grow to Christ, grow in Christ, and build the church of Jesus. But the Bible says that God's ways are not the ways of man. Put yourself in the position of these Jewish folks before they left Judea. You're, you were born and raised in Judea. Your folks live in Judea, and your wife just had a baby. What does every wife who just had a baby want to do? They want to live near their mother. Am I wrong? Of course my daughter's talking about moving down to Atlanta. Why? Because she's moving to our house so we can watch her kids. I know this is how it works. So make yourself a Jewish believer in Judea. You know, Jesus told me to go to the four corners of the world and tell people about Jesus, but my folks are here. I've got a good job. I'm pretty comfortable. Yeah. I think I'll set down some roots. I'll have the kind of moderate, easy, squeezy, just get along Christianity. And God is so loving. You know what he does? I won't let you have that kind of Christianity. Really? Really? What's coming? My plan. <laughs> he sends persecution. And so he sends persecution, and, 
And the devil thinks he's going to destroy the church. And this is where God, you know, sometimes in some churches, it's like Jesus is 51% the wrestler and the devil is like the 49% and they're doing one of these. It is not like that, beloved. <laughs> the devil is a creature. What is Martin Luther's hymn? One little word shall what? Shall fell him. So Christ superintends the whole business. He's God come in the flesh and the devil is just a creature. The devil thinks, aha, I've got him. And as they're chasing the, the, the Jewish believers out of Jerusalem, what are the Jews doing, the believing Jews, as they run away for their lives? They're scattering the gospel seed everywhere they go. That's this. That's this. Everywhere you go. As a, I'm going to talk to every true lover of Jesus. Every, I'm a, I am a dyed-in-the-wool, don't-tell-anybody, Yankee, 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 Yankee. But I love the South. I'm going to die down here. But I, I half want my body to be born, and then I want my heart to go back up to Boston. I am just a Yankee through and through. But my real heart is for Jesus. And wherever God sends you, you're just scattering Jesus everywhere you go. Scattering, that's this. And so then we're going to meet with a couple of kind of servants. We're going to meet with Jewish believers who tell only Jewish people about Jesus. Then we're going to meet Hellenized Jewish believers who tell everybody about Jesus. And then we're going to meet with an especial servant, Barnabas, who is especially Christ-like, helping folks grow in Jesus Christ. We're told in the passage here that some of these people that were scattered spoke to Jews alone. Now, I believe that these folks are the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who are scattered because of the persecution. And they go out and they're only telling the Jewish people in these Gentile regions about Jesus Christ as Savior. And I don't want to go too far afield, but essentially, they didn't listen to last week's sermon from Paul, from, excuse me, Peter, in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. God said to Peter, and then he says to the church, don't call people that I call clean, unclean. And, and God tells Peter, and then God tells the Gentiles and the Jews, I actually meant what I said in the Great Commission. I want you to go to everyone. And these people didn't get the memo. And they thought, you know what? Either they, di they, didn't, they, they weren't aware of Peter's meeting, or they didn't believe Peter's meeting, and they certainly didn't believe the Great Commission. And they certainly didn't believe the promises in the Old Testament that promised Gentile inclusion. My wife said to me, my wife and I, do, we have some, some games that we play, some intimate games that we play. Uh, we plan our funerals. And as we plan our own funerals, she tells me I have to die after her so I can do her funeral. And we change each our funeral texts and we pick music. We're, this, is, this is what crazy people do. And my wife told me last week, okay, John, I want you to preach Isaiah chapter, is it nine? Where's my wife? Is, is it nine? And people living in great darkness shall what? And she said, that's me. I was a Hindu living in Hindu darkness and I came to see a great light the light of Christ. That's Old Testament. That's Isaiah. That's Isaiah. There are gobs of passages where God says, I'm going to save the Gentiles. These people did not get the memo. These are true believers in Jesus Christ, but there are parts of the Bible that are like, you know what? Yeah, I don't really believe that part of the Bible. Be careful about who we unchristianize. You can be a real Christian, but get some stuff really wrong, but still be a real Christian. Am I right with that? These people 
Are they right or wrong for not evangelizing Gentiles? Right or wrong? They're wrong. But I, want, I, I don't want to spend so much time on their wrongness. These erring believers, what do they do that's right? What do they do that's right? They still evangelize Jews. We could say, aha, some, some Christians have the gift of criticism. Aha, I totally do everything better than you, and I can see all of your, your faults. Well, can you see all of their good stuff too? I mean, if, if you've got the super, like, I don't know, Superman x-ray vision, you ought to be able to see all the good stuff too. And these people clearly erred. They should have been telling the Gentiles. But they disobeyed in one thing, but they were obedient in another thing. They told the Jews about Jesus. And here's a pastoral application I, I took from this great comfort. Well, they're wrong. They're the weaker brother here. But they're still a little obedient. There was a, a writer. Some guys say it was Martin Luther, but I don't think so. Um, Christ takes people that he likens to a crooked stick. And he makes straight lines to himself with a crooked stick. I am encouraged that these Jews who believe in Jesus, who are wrong and not evangelizing Gentiles, who are right evangelizing the Jews, are wrong in some things, but serviceable to Jesus in other things. I'm encouraged by that because that's everyone in this room, including me. Everyone. I'm trying to understand more about Zwingli, and so I bought a ton of books on Zwingli. And, and you know this. If you're, if you're new to our kind, well, if you're, it doesn't matter. It does, pick whatever type of Christian you are. Let me take whoever you love as a Christian historical figure. Give me five weeks. Let me read his stuff. And what am I going to find? Martin Luther, rock star. Zwingli, rock star. Calvin, rock star. Stronger brother, right? Spreading the gospel, freeing it from bondage to Roman Catholicism. Rock star, right? Right, right, yeah. Killing Anabaptists and piling them up like cordwood. That's pretty bad. If you were a Baptist in, 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 in Zurich, if you were a Baptist, you love Jesus like nobody's business. You believe the gospel and you were a Baptist. Swingley so said, well, we got, a, we got a plan for you. You can either repent and baptize those babies or we're going to hogtie you with your hands and your legs behind your back and we're going to take you on in that lake on a boat and we're going to pitch you in. What do you think? It's stunning. Did Luther do work for Christ? Dwingley, Calvin. Beloved, I praise God. Every last one of us is a crooked stick. We have some things right and we have gobs of things wrong. And beloved, we ought not take that as, well, I'm just going to sit down in my error. No. But we should take confidence that we don't have to get to some perfect state of mere sinlessness to serve Jesus. Serve Jesus where you're at with your abilities. I was asked to minister to a guy who was in prison and I asked the guy, the minister, what's he in prison for? And he was in prison with children for abusing children. And I said, man, I can't do it. If you could... If he's in there for robbing a bank or being a drunk or a drug addict, that one I understand. I'll, I'll be a minister to him. But I can't do that one. 
I, I just, I can't. I, I don't have it. I just, I'm the weaker brother. I don't have it. Maybe someone else has it. Praise God for that. I've got so much. How do I want to say? <laughs> You've got the stronger brothers who are the Hellenized Jews. And they're from Cyrene and Cyprus. And these are Jews that came to believe in Jesus that live in these Gentile places. Cyrene's at the top of um, Africa. And if you go from Africa, maybe 1,200 miles northeast to the island of Cyprus, 1,200 miles, then from Cyprus up a little bit to the coast, you have Antioch. And I, I want you to see something. God takes us because he's God. He puts us in different situations. He gives us different mums, different dads, different cultures, different backgrounds, different gifts. He makes us different. And all of the, I'll call them non-religious differences. All of those non-religious differences, the Lord Jesus Christ will use for the advance of his church. What do I mean by that? Here are these Jews that believe in Jesus who can only tell Jews. But here are these other Jews that grew up around Gentiles. And they get the memo. And they are keen to say, you know, we lived with people in Cyrene. Barnabas is from Cyprus. His, his Jewish name is Joseph. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a Levite. But he grew up on Cyprus, which is just off the coast to, to Antioch, to Syria. He grew up with, with these kind of people. I'm going to say this, and then I'll, I promise I will close. Most of us are probably, maybe, as, a, as American Christians, we've only ever been around American Christians, right? Am I right with that? I grew up where I grew up in New England, and my wife has been everywhere, India, Brazil, you name it. And on our honeymoon, we went on a, a, a cruise. And I remember looking around, it was not fun. And there were like, we went, there were open sewers, and some people, I'd never seen people this poor in my life, ever. And she's kind of like, well, She's like, why are you freaking out? I'm like, I've never seen this in my entire life. And she has. My point with that is this. Sometimes we're only around the folks that we're around. Other people are, are strangers to us. We don't know them. We don't appreciate them. We don't like them. And we have lots of prejudicial thoughts against them. And we're not serviceable to them for Christ's sake. And what I mean is, is this. So if all of a sudden I said to you right now, okay, look, at see these people are in Syria and they're telling Syrian unbelievers, Antiochian unbelievers about Jesus. Let's say I said to you right now as an American Christian, I got some plane tickets and off you go. What would you think? Well, if you thought about it for more than five seconds, they have different food, different culture, different everything. And I guarantee you, if you're there more than five minutes, yeah, I don't know about this, send me back home. But how about this? How about you're raised in Syria as a Syrian Christian and you go tell Syrian Muslims about Jesus Christ? Beloved, there's great benefit to being taken out of our comfort zone and being brought to another people to live with those people because you start to learn about them, you start to like them even, and maybe even start to what? To love them. So are Muslims. This is places a Muslim place. What? 
Are they just kind of some subhuman people? Or what do you think? Could even they be redeemed by the person and the work of Jesus Christ? Hindus, Buddhists. But to us, it's just, boy, this is so strange. But if God placed us and lived with them, we'd grow to, we'd grow to love them. And the one thing about Barnabas that he does is he's the son of encouragement. In his service to Jesus and service to this, the people of Jesus, he's loving. It's helpful as a minister to know some stuff about the Bible and to know some stuff about the people that you're ministering to. It's necessary to love them. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, it's one thing for a man to say, I love preaching, and it's another thing for a man to say, I love the people that I'm preaching to. Because it's the man that loves the people that he's preaching to that God says, I'm going to bless that. And God will cause the growth. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.